This week on the Pressure Cast, Horizon Zero Dawn gets free DLC, Cuphead will remain an Xbox exclusive, and Bayonetta might be heading to the Nintendo Switch. It's Monday, July 10th, 2017. Everything happened in the world of video games is here, now, on the Pressure Cast. Pressure Pals, welcome to the 189th episode of the Pressure Cast. Video Games or Dumb.com's weekly news panic that posts every single Monday on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, and America's longest running independent newspaper at ShepherdExpress.com. My name is Colin Tanner, and I'm caffeinated and ready to ramble to you about some gosh darn video games. We have a lot to get to this week, but uh, before we do, I should mention if you want to contact the Pressure Cast, it's super simple. You can call, text, email, tweets, even leave comments on Facebook or leave comments on this YouTube video. If you're looking for those links, you can check the description below. They're always there. So please go uh, look at that or go to facebook.com slash VGA dumb. That is VGA dumb and give us a like. It'll be nice. It'll keep you updated as to what's going on in this very strange, very, very sad endeavor. Very sad endeavor. Anyway, I uh, hope you guys are enjoying your summer so far. I assume that you're listening to this or watching this somewhere on a beach, perhaps, putting suntan lotion on and being like, oh yeah, video games, all right. This is pretty good. This is pretty good. I could get used to this. But, uh, you know, thank you for tuning in this week. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, lawsuits when we get to the chart park. We're going to be talking about everything that happened 10 years ago and beyond in Strong History. That's where we talk about the history of video games. But, of course, we have to start off by getting on the train. Chug-a-chug-chug-chug, here comes the train. Toot-a-toot-toot. Beep-beep. That's right, it's time for the hype train. Feel the PR vibrations as we barrel towards video game satisfaction station on the hype train. This is the part of the show where we talk about all those upcoming video games and events. You know, the things that you guys love. <laughs> to get you hyped up, to spend all your money, and become a video game guru. And we're going to be starting out by talking about Crash Bandicoot, because last week, the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy, that's a, uh, in case you don't know, that's a remake of the three iconic PlayStation 1 classics. Well, the Crash Insane Trilogy launched on the PlayStation 4 and quickly climbed up the charts. We'll be talking more about that at the chart park. Well, now it's uh, giving this 20-year-old character a popular resurgence. This has led many to wonder what exactly is going to happen next for our, uh, our, 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 our pants-wearing marsupial friend. What's he going to be up to next? Well, in an interview with GameIndustry.biz, Eric Hirschberg, the CEO of Activision, and before we go any further, I do want to say Eric Hirschberg is the CEO of Activision, not Activision Blizzard, that's Bobby Kotek. I just want to clarify so no one gets confused here. So uh, anyway, in the interview, Hirschberg hinted that we might be seeing Crash return in a new adventure, depending how the insane trilogy is received. And we actually have a quote right here from Eric Hirschberg. Here's what he said, quote, we are experimenting with Crash. We know there's a vocal fan base that wanted that to come back, but you never know if that's emblematic of a larger audience or just a niche nostalgia-based community. So far, we're seeing some real passion for it, so that could lead to other things. Ooh, that's exciting. Other things. Uh, of course, we are always trying to find the next big thing, but our first priority is to make sure we are servicing the communities that we already that we are already lucky enough to have. End quote. Uh, it might be hard to believe, but the last standalone Crash Bandicoot game, outside of like random mobile stuff, was Crash Mind Over Mutant, and that was launched on the Wii 360 and PlayStation 3 back in 2008. 
That's nearly a decade ago. So yeah, it's been a really long time. This is likely the first introduction of Crash Bandicoot for kids outside of maybe the Skylanders cameo he had. So. Uh, I do recommend you guys go out here and read this Eric Hirschberg interview. It's fantastic, and they actually cover a lot of topics like Skylanders and like Call of Duties and a lot of their key franchises. But as far as Crash goes, I'm, I guess I'm just a little bit... Um, I assume we're getting a new game. I always assumed we were going to be getting a new game ever since they announced the Insane Trilogy, which is why I'm, 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 I'm kind of surprised that he says, oh, we're just experimenting uh, at this point, because... You saw the reception right away, and now you're seeing how it's doing on the charts, and it's clearly not just a nostalgia bump. Or I guess I shouldn't say that. We, we would need to wait a couple of weeks and see how long it stays on the charts before making like a definitive statement about that. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm surprised by that experimental statement because, that, you know, it's... When I look at that game, and I actually played the entire collection, you can go to youtube.com slash dumb and watch my review of it, because I played the entire collection. When I look at what that thing is, it seems like, you know, it seems like it's prepping everyone for the major revival of Crash Bandicoot. And it's, in fact, if that's what it was intended for, it's one of the most brilliant revivals I've ever seen. Because consider this, you know, whenever you see a remake, people are always like, hmm, is this really how the game used to be? Hmm, I think it was slightly different. And you're kind of seeing that with the Insane Trilogy, because some people are saying, oh, it's harder than it used to be, which isn't really true. The game is just really hard, and games have gotten easier over time. But, you know, people are playing these games, and they are identical to the PlayStation 1 games, for better or worse. They have kept the gameplay entirely intact. But what they've done is that they've given up all these brand new graphics. They've kind of reimagined the Crash Bandicoot world, like, oh, here's what it would be like if we made a new Crash Bandicoot game. And they've redesigned Crash Bandicoot, they've redesigned Cortex, they've redesigned Coco, they've redesigned all these core characters, but no one really notices because it's wrapped in the exact same games that they remember from back on the uh, on the PlayStation 1. And that's really brilliant, because can you imagine if they just decided we're going to make a brand new Crash Bandicoot game and they showed off what Crash looked like? Like, even if he was identical to this insane trilogy, people would be standing back and going, oh, they got this wrong. See, the eyebrows should be like this and the eyes should be like this and his hands and it should be like this and he should be wearing a fedora and have a fidget spinner that's what they'd be saying this is true i've gone into an alternative dimension and that's exactly what they would say uh, but instead they've contained this character right in this this nostalgia piece so people right away are like oh no that's crash bandicoot sure that's exactly what he looks like. It's brilliant. Um, that said, let's say that they are going forward making a brand new Crash Bandicoot. Who exactly is going to develop this? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I looked at Activision's list of developers and there's just no one that stands out that would be appropriate to design a new Crash Bandicoot game. Now, the Insane Trilogy was done by uh, Vicarious Visions and Toys for Bob, the people that do the Skylanders series. And... I, I guess they could take a crack at it, because it looks like everyone else is busy doing something related to Call of Duty or, well, actually almost all the studios are related to Call of Duty. Seriously, I went through all of them. It was shocking how it's like, oh, there's a support team on, you know, Sledgehammer games or on Treyarch's games or, um, yeah, what's the other one? Infinity Ward. Wow, isn't that sad? Can't remember Infinity Ward's name. They used to be so big. So I guess it would have to be Vicarious Visions, but, you know, I don't... I don't know how uh, adapt they are as developers. I know that they're really good at porting this game, but I haven't played enough Skylanders to be like, oh yeah, these guys are these are brilliant. But uh, I don't know. Let me know what you would like to see in the next Crash Bandicoot game. Let me know who you'd like to see develop it. Or let me know if you even want another Crash Bandicoot game. Maybe you're a Bandicoot hater. I know you guys are out there. I know you are. 
Toot toot. Well, let's move over to some Overwatch news because after months of rumors, Blizzard has finally introduced their latest introduction to Overwatch, the ominously named Doomfist. Unlike the rest of the roster, his abilities largely center around melee strikes from his Doomfist. It's kind of obvious he does a lot of punching because he has a Doomfist. If you had a Doomfist, you would likely do a lot of punching. You wouldn't walk into a situation and start kicking people. You would go right for the Doomfist, right? Well, his attacks are basically controlling the direction of his enemies. So he can do an uppercut, which sends his opponents flying, or he can do like a ground slam that sends his uh, opponents closer to him, which he can then quickly follow up with his hand cannon. I guess he has like a short range uh, gun of some sort. Uh, and he also has his super attack where he just lands on the ground and just destroys everyone. Oh, and he has like a, a distance closing um, strike attack where he kind of like flies towards enemies. There's no words on when he's going to be officially joining Overwatch, but if you want to play as Doomfist and you have a PC, you can play Doomfist in the Overwatch public test realm. And uh, you know, it's funny, this was actually one of the biggest stories of the week. People immediately got hyped about Doomfist. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, even though it was, like I said, one of the biggest stories, everyone just wanted to talk about the actor Terry Crews, and in case you don't know, Terry Crews is sort of this, he's a really energetic, he's, he's a very masculine actor, but he likes to have a good time, he likes to joke around. He got really popular uh, a couple of years ago when he built a PC and went to, I think, he went to Reddit and a couple of other forums and just asked them how to build a PC and that just got a, a groundswell of support because, you know, he's a really cool, charismatic guy and it felt like he was, um, you know, it felt like he was embracing video game culture, which is always really cool. So he actually tweeted out, or maybe it was like an Instagram, he actually went and auditioned for the character Doomfist, and he didn't get the part. And, like, there's two different topics on here. It's either people talking about, oh, Doomfist looks really cool, followed up by like, why the fuck didn't Terry Crews get the part? It's so funny, people really wanted to see him there. But he didn't get the part, whatever. He's a cool guy, and Doomfist looks dope. But, uh, just focusing on the character itself, Doomfist, I, this is one of those moments where I just, I don't know, it made me really appreciate what Overwatch has become on, a, on an entirely different level. Uh, like, I remember playing Overwatch when it was released last spring. Was it really just last spring? God, this game feels like it's been around forever. You know, it feels like it's part of the, part of the culture. Like, it's embedded into everything that's about video games, and it's only been about 18 months. Maybe less than that, probably. But I remember when this game came out, and everyone was comparing it to Team Fortress 2. I was comparing it to Team Fortress 2. It had that, that perfect balance of characters, where it's like, well, how could they introduce anything else? But, you know, Team Fortress 2, they start introducing new weapons and new items. Overwatch brought in full-fledged characters, which is a lot more complicated because you have to get the people to like the character. And it obviously worked because look at someone like um, Sombra. Sombra, new character, was introduced well after the game came out. But she feels like she's always been there. And that's remarkable. She feels like she fits right into that cast. Uh, but anyway, it's been a minute since I played Overwatch, but I will definitely jump back in when they uh, launch Doomfist, which is awesome. A free character. Man, who would have thought this game was going to be holding up just, you know, 18 months later. It still feels like it's new and it's fresh. That's awesome. Toot toot. Speaking of updates, last week Guerrilla Games sent out a patch for the last, for the, uh, <laughs> I almost said The Last of Us. Last week, Guerrilla Games sent out a patch for Horizon Zero Dawn, introducing a selection of updated weapons and customizable face paint at you want to like, I don't know, give Alloy some new face paint, you can do that. As well as a brand new ultra hard mode difficulty, and of course, a couple of new trophies. Because you have to have new trophies if you're going to introduce new mechanics. Uh, but perhaps the most exciting ex inclusion is the new game plus mode, allowing players to carry over their experience into a new playthrough of the game. 
It's one of my favorite things to do in any any game, but it's uh, worth noting that the level cap is still only at 50 So you're not gonna be going up to like level 100 even if you're playing ultra hard mode. It's still capped at 50 um, You know during the E3 press conference for PlayStation I was really happy to see that Horizon Zero Dawn already had DLC support and that it was gonna be coming soon uh, And I know it shouldn't be that surprised because of course the game is selling very well I just I guess I'm impressed that Sony looked at this franchise and just knew it was gonna be a hit because they have this post-game roadmap. Um, they, I mean, they had to have a lot of faith in it because they, they just introduced a bunch of free stuff and they didn't even tell people this was happening in advance. It was just out of nowhere. It's like, oh, here's New Game Plus, here's an ultra hard mode, and we have some DLC coming down the line. And that's awesome because, you know, for me, Horizon Zero Dawn is one of the best games of the year so far. Like, hands down, it is a masterpiece. I highly recommend people play it. I, I've seen some interesting statements online talking about, oh, people just like it for the graphics. Oh, the world design is actually really boring. But I, I don't feel that way. I feel the, the world design is, is amazing because it has this real natural aesthetic to it that you can, you never get lost in, but it never feels um, like you're being funneled anywhere. But you are. You are clearly being funneled towards the next location, but it doesn't feel like that. So that's a remarkable talent on, on the for the developers. It's not quite as open world as, say, something like Breath of the Wild, but hey, not everything has to be. They're both good games. Uh, but I'm excited to see this uh, new game plus mode. Always cool. They actually... That's just awesome. They could have charged for this, but they just threw it in there. Super cool. Toot toot. Uh, and lastly, in updates, because there was a lot of updates to previously released games, uh, Bandai Namco has announced its first piece of DLC for Tekken 7, and it is a throwback to a PlayStation 2 classic, and I am stupidly excited for it. Tekken Bowling. Yes, Tekken Bowling will make its return for the first time in 12 years, and it's going to be uh, available through an August add-on DLC pack, which also includes 50 new costumes, in case you like to dress up your characters. Yeah. Well, that's really the whole story. I know there's not much to this story, it's just about Tekken Bowling, but I'm sorry, I love Tekken Bowling. Uh, and if you've never played it, it's just Tekken characters bowling. And I don't know what it is about it, but just like the way that it, just the music and the aesthetics of it all, and just like the way the ball kind of has like a little bit of an explosion <laughs> when it's hitting these uh, Haishi Mishimura pins, it's, it's, it's stupid and it's silly, but that's kind of the whole point. And I'm just happy to see that they've brought that back in. Now, the one thing I can't figure out is, is this August update free DLC or do you have to pay for it? If you have to pay for it, it's kind of like, hmm. That's not quite as much fun as I was hoping, but, you know, if it's free, awesome. I'll check it out for sure. Toot toot. Anyway, way back in 2014, we're moving over to Xbox news, by the way. Way back in 2014, the cartoonist shoot 'em up Cuphead made its debut during the Xbox E3 press conference. Now that its uh, September 29th release date has finally been revealed, many have been wondering, when exactly will Cuphead come to other consoles? Or more importantly, will it come to other consoles at all? Well, we now have the answer. It won't. It will never. Uh, Studio MDHR, the developers of Cuphead, were answering questions on the popular internet forum, NeoGAF. Everyone loves NeoGAF, right? <laughs> when one user asked, and this is a direct quote, quote, so is this game 100% lifetime PC Microsoft exclusive, end quote, to which uh, Studio MDHR answered, quote, yes, this Cuphead game is exclusive to Xbox and PC with Steam and Windows 10 versions, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there will likely be a Mac version down the road and possibly a Linux version beyond that, unless we lose our houses or whatever, hardy har har. Uh, but at the very end, he mentions, uh, we own the Cuphead IP. Uh, so there you have it. The Xbox One uh, exclusive is not a timed exclusive. It is a permanent exclusive. Cuphead will only be available on the Xbox One 
and Windows 10 PC and possibly Mac and some sort of good old games version uh, down the line. But this really makes me wonder what exactly is the relationship between Studio MDHR and Microsoft? Uh, because Phil Spencer has been doing a lot of interviews over the past three months, especially during uh, E3. He was almost everywhere, and he kept saying he had no interest in paying for exclusives. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want exclusives on his platform. Obviously, he does, but it seems like the focus is on studios they own rather than just walking up to, you know, someone like uh, a Square Enix and be like, hey, can we get that Tomb Raider? Yes, those things have happened in the past, but not usually on Phil Spencer's watch. In fact, there's no example of that happening uh, when Phil Spencer has been in charge. And, you know, you can tell he's serious about this, because he has been porting all of those Xbox games to PC. There's a greater emphasis on expanding the Xbox lineup to the personal computer, which is awesome. It's a win-win for everyone. But it's worth pointing out, he only became the head of Xbox, I want to say in March of 2014, and that's three months before Cuphead debuts at E3. So he probably didn't make the initial deal, right? I mean, I have to assume it, because... He's already been on the record saying we don't pay for exclusive content. He always uses the example, we don't want to pay for something to keep it away from other uh, platforms, which I think is awesome, uh, even though exclusives are some of my favorite games of all time. Just saying. But this last final bit in this Cuphead quote is that whole thing about we own the Cuphead IP. That's a really interesting comment because it's basically saying we're going to make a sequel to this and it will be on the PlayStation 4, which is kind of like the comments that EA made after Titanfall came out on the Xbox One. You know, when they, when EA was like, hey, if you want Titanfall, it's not coming to the PlayStation 4, but this is only for this game. Who knows where Titanfall is going? That's kind of what it sounds like for Cuphead. Uh, unless, of course, they could release some sort of Cuphead Game of the Year edition. I don't know. That, that would be a very specific deal. Uh, but still, really looking forward to Cuphead. It's been on my radar since day one, and I can't wait to play it. Anyway. Toot toot. We got more Microsoft news. It was a very good week for Halo fans. First, 343 Industries announced that the upcoming Xbox One X console, which is going to be that whole 4K console, uh, it would actually enhance Halo 5 Guardians, the 2015 Halo game, with, quote, true 4K. Cool. And if you've been paying attention at all to the Xbox One X true 4K, I guess some would call it a fiasco. It sounds like some third-party games are not really true 4K, but it sounds like all the first-party Microsoft projects like uh, uh, Project Gotham Racing and obviously this this uh, Halo 5 Guardians, that's going to be in true 4K, if you're into that. I don't really care about 4K just yet, but just, just saying. Anyway, uh, the, the really big news this week was that most of the Halo main franchise entries are going to be added to Xbox One backwards compatibility with Halo 1, uh, the anniversary version of Halo 1, the 360 version, uh, Halo 3, ODST, and Halo 4 coming to backwards compatibility some point during the summer. Also worth noting, every single piece of DLC has also been made free on Xbox Live, which is a pretty cool gesture. And finally, 343 Industries announced that there's brand new content coming to Halo Wars 2. That's right, Halo Wars 2 is getting new content, and nobody cares, because why would they? <laughs> that game is boring. So, this is great news for Halo fans, they're getting free stuff. I mean, who the hell could complain about that? But doesn't this basically kill off the Master Chief Collection? And in case you don't know, you're like, what's the hell's the Master Chief Collection? Microsoft actually re-released Halo 1, 2, 3, 4 onto the uh, Xbox One in something called the Master Chief Collection. It was a full compilation video game. They even added ODST as free DLC because fans complained. And then they added Halo Reach as um, backwards compatible content, uh, you know, 
same thing they're doing right here. And of course you're going like, hey, why isn't Halo 2 on this list? Well, that's because Halo 2, of course, was never re-released on the 360. It was only available on the Xbox One. And also, you know, Halo 2 used a very specific type of netcode for the original Xbox that does not work with the current infrastructure of um, uh, 360 and Xbox One. I mean, it's weird, right? Because it looks like they just gave up on, on this whole project that they spent all this money on. Like, the Master Chief Collection, it was a cluster when it came out, but they've been patching it and working on it and really trying to give it, make it the best thing that it can be, and now it just looks like they've given up because it doesn't look like these these uh, these backwards compatible versions are going to connect to the Master Chief Collection, so they're going to have these two separate versions of Halo 3 running at the same time? Isn't that just weird? I mean, maybe they do connect, and if they do, never mind, that's awesome, but if they don't, well, you just kind of killed off one of your major exclusives. For no reason. Just saying. Toot toot. Anyway, let's go over to some PlayStation news. Following the announcement earlier this year, PlayStation 4 games have finally, finally been added to the PlayStation Now game streaming service. And in case you don't know what PlayStation Now is, it's a service that streams games directly to your PlayStation 4 console or PC, no downloading required. Though, like Netflix or anything else, you would need a good internet service because it is sending uh, information to your console and then you, it is sending your button inputs back to the server where they actually have a PlayStation 4 or a PlayStation 3 running. It's cool. Um, but they added all these games that are PlayStation 4. Previously, they were only PlayStation 3 games. So let's run through the list of what they added. Starting off with Akiba's... Uh, <laughs> I've messed up already. Akiba's Beat. Got it. Uh, Broken Age. Castle Storm Definitive Edition, Darksiders 2 Definitive Edition, uh, Dead Nation Apocalypse Edition, uh, Evolve, uh, Exist Archive, The Other Side of the Sky, F1 2015, God of War 3 Remastered, Grim Fandango Remastered, Helldivers, uh, Killzone Shadowfall, MX vs. ATV, Supercross Encore, Needhog, Rezogun, Saints Row 4 Reelected, Super Mega Baseball, Tropico 5, uh, Ultra Street Fighter 4, and WWE 2K16. Worth knowing that PlayStation Now is available for $20 or $100 for a full year. You $20 a month or $100 a full year. Uh, you know, <laughs> looking at this list, it's kind of like, I don't know about this. <laughs> this isn't, this isn't, I mean, it's a good first effort. I'll give them that. Um, but one of the main markets they should kind of be going after are PC users, you know, because PC users can finally play PlayStation games on PC. That's pretty amazing. But if you look at the list, it's kind of like Akiba's Beat and God of War 3 and, you know, Dead Nation, but not much else for PC users. And if you're a PlayStation 4 user, it's like, why would I want to play Street Fighter 4 over internet? That's bizarre. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, but I will say, at the very least, it is very admirable how long Sony is stuck with PlayStation Now. Because, you know, I feel like most other uh, companies would have given up on it. But it's clear that Sony has some sort of... Um, direction. They're going somewhere with this service. Uh, and it, I, I feel like it's probably not there where they want it to be just yet. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never known anyone that actually subscribes to PlayStation now. I don't know anyone that does. I've known people that, that have used it in the past with like a free trial, but I don't know anyone that actually pays for it. Uh, and you know, not to mention that we've never received numbers on exactly how many PlayStation now subscribers there are at the moment. Sony does not release those numbers. So, you know, is it successful or not? I don't know, but Sony has stuck with this so far, and, and the fact that they're actually adding PlayStation 4 games to the service, that really shows a strong commitment. But I wonder how far out they plan for this. Like, will they eventually add uh, PlayStation 4 
Pros as the server systems instead of the original PlayStation 4s, so that way they can output HDR and 4K when the internet eventually improves in the United States. And I realize, yes, that is a that is that is a um, that's kind of like a pipe dream at this moment. But I'm just wondering, like, how far out do they plan to work with this? Like, is this going to be the future of consoles? Instead of selling us a brand new system, we just purchase a, a box that streams that does not play anything natively on it. It's just basically you know, in a, uh, uh, a video output and an internet connection. I'm just saying, like, I would assume that's where Sony's going. And I know that's kind of future tech, but it's worth mentioning. Anyway, toot toot. Moving over to Nintendo. Last week, the company held one of their Nintendo Direct live streams, this time focusing on Splatoon 2. However, the biggest news coming out of the event was our first glimpse at the upcoming Nintendo Switch Online service. And yes, it's really just called Nintendo Switch Online. That's 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 the name they came up with. Uh, as previously mentioned, the service will be accessible through a mobile phone application. <sighs> Whatever. And they decided to use Splatoon 2 as the first example of what users will be able to do when they connect their mobile phone to their Switch through a mobile app. They're going to be able to contact their friends list, they're going to be able to create private lobbies, and they're even going to be able to keep track of their player's performance in Splatoon 2, which is pretty neat. Uh, the Nintendo Switch Online service will launch on July 21st, the same day as Splatoon 2, and will remain free until 2018 when it costs $20 to use. Pretty cool. So yeah, this was a uh, kind of a big deal. I mean, no one else puts their online service on a single mobile app. So, you know, getting our first glimpse at this was like, whoa, this is what it's going to be like on the Switch. I know it's maybe I'm overhyping it. But I've got to say, after I got a, uh, a good look at this, after I saw like some of the screenshots and I, I, I watched the Nintendo Direct, I kind of walked away with a familiar feeling. You know, that this maybe this Nintendo Switch mobile app isn't all that different as we expected because when I look at it, it reminds me a lot of the PlayStation and Xbox Live app. I don't know if you guys have those on your phones, but they're really handy whenever you're trying to respond to messages or making like a quick purchase on the store. It works pretty well. You know, I, I respond to most of my Xbox Live and, and PlayStation Network uh, messages and, and friends list through the app rather than the system itself. So, you know, the Switch app looks more friendly and game-centric, but it just looks like a pretty familiar experience. And frankly, uh, I like what I see, actually, all things considered. Now, I would much rather actually be able to access that information on the console, at least have that as an option. But hey, for a mobile app that's going to be, you know, taking over that functionality, it doesn't look terrible. But the one thing that I think isn't excusable is Nintendo completely sidestepped any information regarding voice chat which we know will only work with friends list players. Like you cannot just talk to random strangers on Splatoon 2, you have to talk to people on your friends list. So this would have been a great opportunity to show exactly what that looks like, but we don't know. I mean, a month ago, we saw that awful hoary headset that connects to the headphone jack on the Switch and then plugs into your phone and it's just a mess of wires. It looks like garbage. And then during E3, Reggie Fizeme was like, well, that's not the only way it's going to work. There's going to be many other ways you can use voice chat. Well, great. What are they? <laughs> because we're less than two weeks out from this thing actually launching, not just the game, but the actual service itself. I mean, this is the launch of an online service for an entire platform, and we have no idea how voice chat is going to work. And I understand voice chat is not as popular as it used to be. You know, most of the time people only talk to their friends. They don't talk to random strangers online. But it still matters. You know, people still use voice chat. So you'd think that they'd want to get ahead of this unless the voice chat is terrible. And that's why they're hiding it. But you wouldn't do that, Nintendo. Would you? They probably will. Anyway, toot toot. It sure looks like... 
<laughs> Let's try that again. It sure looks like Platinum Games is preparing something for the Nintendo Switch console because over the past week, we saw the developer send out a series of cryptic tweets hinting at future releases. One showed the image of three players designed in the style of the Wii U exclusive Wonderful 101 with Joy-Cons in their hands. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. In fact, one of those characters actually looks a lot like the director of Wonderful 101, Hideki Kamiya. Hmm. Hmm. What does that mean? And then they have another tweet which showed a mirrored image of Bayonetta, one that had her original getup with a red background, another one that had her Bayonetta 2 hairstyle with a blue background, and these two colors look strikingly similar to the way that the red and blue Joy-Cons look. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And it's also worth noting that Bayonetta 2 was funded by Nintendo and is a Nintendo exclusive. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, I think it's pretty obvious that Wonderful 101 and both Bayonettas are going to be coming to the Switch. I mean, <laughs> they have to. They really have to. Think about it now. Nintendo spent all this money getting these exclusives, like funding this development over the course of years, and they put it on the Wii U, and they don't make that money back. They don't reach that full potential. So what are they going to do? Just like leave it on a dead console? Or are they going to bring them over? Why not? I mean, and even in the... um the grand scheme of, of like, Wii U games, Wonderful 101 didn't sell that well. Just make some money back. How hard could it be to port it over? And personally, when it comes to Bayonetta 2, I am completely up for playing Bayonetta 2 again. It, some might even say it was the best game of 2014. Some people might say that, but they're very smart people. Only smart people say that. I don't know who says that. But uh, some would say Bayonetta 2, best game of 2014. As for the Wonderful 101, yeah, I'll give it another crack. You know, I played it on the Wii U and it just wasn't my thing. Um, it's a really crazy concept. You know, it's, a, it's basically like superhero Pikmin. <laughs> I know that sounds insane, but that's really what it's like. Uh, so if I have these games, um, you know, it, I'm up for playing them again. There's not that much on the Switch, and these are games that at least I know are good. So I wouldn't mind picking them up again. But why don't we get out ahead of this right now? If you think you're going to be playing Wonderful 101 or Bayonetta, on your Switch for less than $60, you're dreaming. They're gonna be charging full price. I'm just putting that out there now so no one says the whole Switch tax thing, which is really obnoxious. Anyway, toot toot, uh, EA Access, the monthly subscription service that allows users to download a collection of EA titles, will get some hefty additions later this year. Last Fall's Battlefield 1 and Titanfall 2 will join the EA vault between July and September. No, they didn't give us exact release dates, but between July and September, look forward to it. Uh, also added were the expansions for Star Wars Battlefront, which is kind of cool. So if you have Star Wars Battlefront on the uh, Xbox One, now you can get all the expansions for free if you have EA Access. I guess it's not really free, whatever, you know what I mean. So this is obviously great news. I mean, it's awesome that we get to see Titanfall 2 introduced to a larger audience because Titanfall 2 launched last fall and it was just DOA. It was bad. Like the game is great, but the sales were just nowhere near what you would expect for, for such a good game. In fact, some might even say it was the best game of 2016. Uh, but only really smart people. I, I don't know who really says that, but you know, s some people would say that's the best game of 2016. So yes, it's obvious that they should be putting this game on EA Access and exposing it to a wider audience. But the inclusion of Battlefield 1 had me a bit confused because <laughs> this is a game that is selling well. It sold well, it's selling well, and will probably continue to sell well, right? I don't understand why EA would do this. That's what I thought at first. But then I stepped back and I thought, oh, wait a minute. Come on. 
This makes total sense. First of all, EA Access is not available on the PlayStation 4, so Battlefield 1 will continue to sell on the PlayStation 4 just fine. Sales will not be affected. Second, uh, I'm sure that they've looked at the, um, the amount of sales and that they're recognizing Battlefield 1 has reached peak sales on the Xbox One and the PC. Uh, Xbox One, obviously a smaller market, which also is a lot more devoted to first-person shooters, so they probably have already reached peak sales there. As for the PC, I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're not going to get as many people as you would hope because... Some people have an adverse reaction to using Origin. They just won't do it, you know. So, I guess this is the only way to get around that. But here's the thing. There's still plenty of paid DLC coming. So sure, come over here. Buy Battlefield 1 on EA Access. Or get some EA Access, and then you gotta pay for the DLC. That's really smart of Battlefield. So yes, it's a win-win. Though I'm a little worried that it might create the expectation after a while that... Why buy any EA game when it's gonna be coming to EA Access eventually? Just saying, be careful with that EA. Anyway, toot toot, here are the games that are going to be coming out this week. Just this week. In stores and digitally. On Tuesday, Fantastic Contraption is coming out on the PlayStation 4. Uh, I have not played the game, I've never heard anything about the game, but it is apparently uh, fantastic. It has fantastic right in the title, I assume that it will live up to that expectation. I hope. Uh, over on the PC, Black the Fall will be released. Okay. Over on the PlayStation 4, Final Fantasy XII The Zodiac Age will launch on the PlayStation 4. This is a remake of Final Fantasy XII, but uh, it's actually a remake of Final Fantasy XII The Zodiac Age, which was a Japanese exclusive, which introduced a brand new job system and a bunch of, of side missions. So even if you played Final Fantasy XII, this is well worth a look, and obviously will look much better graphically. Uh, MotoGP 17 will be on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Of course, you can purchase those games digitally, but if you want to buy a physical copy, you have to go to GameStop. It's a GameStop exclusive. Over on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, Hunting Simulator will be out. What exactly is Hunting Simulator? Well, I'll find out in a couple of weeks because I'm actually going to pick up a copy and review it. Because <laughs> it's just like Hunting Simulator. Uh, on Wednesday, Iron Cryptical will be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Kind of a cryptic title, if you ask me. <laughs> on Friday, Reptile Rebellion will be out on the Wii U. So the Wii U is getting a game this week. That's pretty awesome. And lastly, on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC, Serial Cleaner will launch. Uh, I didn't actually look into this game, but the cover's like a bathroom floor covered in blood, which is pretty awesome, man. It's pretty awesome. I might check that game out. <laughs> beep, beep. That's going to do it for the hype train. Yeah, I love that hype train. Isn't it a great hype train? Anyway, uh, you know, for the past few weeks, I've been talking about how we want to alter and improve the pressure cast. That is still in the works. I've been doing some new things with the Worth It videos where I'm putting myself a little bit more in them. I don't know if that's an improvement, but it's something different. There's gonna be a lot of experiments going on in the near future, and you might not like all of them, but that's okay, because all you gotta do is tell me what you like and what you don't like, and then we can work around that. Uh, as for uh, Worth It, uh, the next upcoming weeks, I'm gonna be doing one, hopefully, on Excel World versus Sword Art Online. I don't know if that's gonna be a review or an impressions video because I mm, I don't know anything about Sword Art. I don't know anything about Excel World. So we're just gonna, we're gonna find out together exactly what that's all about. And uh, then in the week after that, like I mentioned before, I'm gonna be checking out <laughs> Hunter Simulator. I, I'm going into it with an open mind because it might be amazing. You never know. That's that's the thing. I, I was talking about this recently when it comes to reviews or whatever. It, it, it was it was not on the microphone. I was talking to someone and uh, just every time I, I play a brand new game, every time I pop that disc in, I'm so excited. I'm like, yep, here it comes. It's going to be awesome. Like I, 
I'm all about it. So, you know, so I never go into a game, whether it's Excel World versus Sword Art Online, where it's like, I don't know anything about this universe. Who knows? This might be the game that's like, oh, I've got to read all the mangas. I don't know. It might be that. So I was going everything with an open mind, even though the end result, I have a definitive statement. I have, I know exactly how I feel. Kind of like Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. I was so excited to play that. And then I played Crash Bandicoot 1 and was very disappointed but thankfully the other two games uh really salvaged that collection go check out that review if you've not youtube.com slash video games are dumb well anyway it's july everybody the sun is shining that means we got to get outside to a place i know that's always warm with the glow of cold hard cash that's right it's time for the chart park the land where money grows on trees yes the chart park this is the part of the show where we talk about the money we talk about the business, the legal, and the financial news in the video game industry. It's about the money, money, money. And we also find out which fat cats of Wall Street will tip their top pets towards Lady Luck. <laughs> Adorable. Let's start off with some sad news. <laughs> Back in 2014, Lords of the Fallen launched on the PlayStation 4, PC, and Xbox One. In many ways, it was uh, similar to the popular Dark Souls series with bonfires and melee combat and stiff controls. But surprisingly, despite being a brand new IP, it sold above Xbox expectations. Good for them. And so the publisher, CI Games, began development on a sequel for Lords of the Fallen, uh, this time without the aid of the original developer, Deck 13. And so, three years later, let's check in. Let's see exactly how Lords of the Fallen 2 is going. It's not going well. <laughs> In an interview with Eurogamer, the former director, Tomas Gump, said that he had been let go after years of development hell. Yes, we are talking about a former director who actually had to walk away from the project because it was just being mishandled so much. Here's what he said, quote, Almost two years I've been working on the sequel, and I have not seen it leave the concept slash vision stage. I was working on something I was really 100% into, and we were not producing the game. End quote. Uh, the head of CI Games, uh, Marek Timski, sorry, it's a Polish name, I'm, I'm not great with those. He explained that development will continue with, quote, a very small team. That's good. So, hmm, huh. I don't think Lords of the Fallen 2 is working out very well. Uh, but first of all, I, I did play the original Lords of the Fallen back in 2015, and I didn't really care for it. I understood what it was going for, I understood the world, and I understood the gameplay, and that it would appeal to a certain audience. But personally, I would rather play something like Dark Souls, because it, it, it almost felt like... Um, Lords of the Fallen almost felt like, uh, Lords of the Fallen compared to Dark Souls kind of felt like Twisted Metal 2 versus Twisted Metal 4, where you can feel 989 Studios is not as good as single track. Either you get that reference or you don't, but that's what Lords of the Fallen felt like. It just felt like a way more polished up version, but it didn't have the same game design. You know what I mean? Uh, but this game, Lords of the Fallen 2, regardless of whatever I felt about the first game, should be at trade shows. They should be doing, uh, press dates with demos and, and, and having trailers and, and a release state it should not be in the concept stage after three years like how does that even happen i know this um gope guy gop gope i don't know he talks a lot about how the the internal attention was was shifting to sniper ghost warrior 3 uh and there's nothing wrong with that like i understand that they were working on lords of the fallen and then a lot of people started working on sniper uh ghost warrior 3 and that's cool that makes sense that's that's a that's a good way to go because you know, you, you want to be able to grow as a studio and having two separate franchises that are successful, that's a good idea, especially when, like I said, you're trying to grow. But now that Sniper fell apart, they have nothing to fall back on because they moved all of their focus onto a single game. And that's a big mistake for any developer to bet everything on a single title. 
which makes me wonder how long CI Games is going to last. My guess. Uh, September 2018. There we go. Put that one on the on the prediction list. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Last March, the Nintendo Switch launched to an immediate success, selling millions of units, and this has caused many publishers and developers to talk in interviews about how they will potentially release things on the Switch using a positive yet aloof tone. You see this all the time. Developers are like, oh, we're really impressed by by Nintendo Switch and what we can do on this platform. I have nothing to announce or confirm. You know, you hear these interviews all the time, right? But over at THQ Nordic, things got a little bit more real with Reinhard Polis. He's the business and product development director. He highlighted the development issues regarding the Nintendo Switch. Here's what he said, quote, we've been in touch with Nintendo about Switch for more than a year. So we've been looking forward to it for our current lineup. And it's a bit sad that they haven't gone out with a bit more beefy hardware. But it is what it is, so we just have to work around, uh, we have to work our way around it. End quote. Hey, you know, <laughs> props to him. And I know this might seem like a nothing story where it's like, why do you care about THQ Nordic? They are nobodies. But they've actually supported Nintendo during some pretty hard times. Hell, they released uh, that Darksiders game on the Wii U just a couple of months ago. No one's releasing Wii U games. <laughs> no one is. I mean, maybe some independent developers, but no one's printing discs to ship to stores for the Wii U, except for THQ Nordic by this point. So, I, you know, I, you've got to listen to them when they say, hey, we're a little disappointed here when it comes to the performance of the console. And I agree. I seriously think this is going to be a problem for the Nintendo Switch going forward. And before we go any further, I like the Nintendo Switch. I like the console. I like using the Joy-Cons. I've liked every game I've played on the Switch so far. This is not me knocking the Switch. But I do think it'll be an issue going forward because first of all, it's an underpowered console. We've seen all the hardware specs and what it's capable of when it's docked or undocked. But at the end of the day, the developers are going to have to target the, the undocked mode, the portable mode. They're going to have to go with that clock speed to keep a consistent experience. I mean, that's the whole gimmick of the console. You have the same experience on the go or on a television. So there might not be enough power there for a reasonable port. Whatever a developer produces, they would not be able to just, you know, drag and drop that over to another console. I mean, that's never the, that's never the port process, but I'm saying... It's going to be a lot more work than, say, going from, uh, you know, PlayStation 4 to PlayStation 4 Pro or Xbox to PlayStation or PlayStation to Xbox. That's, it's going to be a lot more challenging. And second of all, my, my biggest concern really is that even with that, that development issue, that won't stop many publishers from just funding a lackluster version of the popular game. You know, they'll just kick out some, some watered-down rendition to the Nintendo Switch, just like they did with the Nintendo Wii. We used to see this all the time, where there would just be like a Wii version of a game, and it was just like... Man, it was some of the worst games you've ever seen. Like, n not even exaggerating, just like the weird... I mean, I, I almost kind of liked the way some of those Wii ports looked. They almost looked like kind of vaporwave or something. They looked like unfinished games. But, uh, and I'm sure some developers are going to be like, whatever, that thing's popular, so we're going to make money, you know? <laughs> so let's go for it. And third, I'm actually really worried that the only way to work around those limitations is to make a, you know, Switch-exclusive game. You know, kind of like what Ubisoft is doing right now with Mario and Rabbids. But most big-time publishers, if you're talking about, like, a like an Activision, outside of Call of Duty, of course. If you're talking about an Activision, or if you're talking about an EA, or if you're talking about any big publisher, they still have a pretty sour taste in their mouth from the Nintendo Wii, because the only thing that really sold on that console were Nintendo games. 
everything else just fell by the wayside. Like, Boom Blocks did not do nearly as well as EA hoped. Most of the Activision games did not do nearly as well as they hoped. Obviously, Call of Duty 4, the one huge exception, somehow that game just, it did gangbusters on there, and I guess people are still playing that online, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm mistaken, I don't know. Now, this shouldn't be that surprising, and I'm not even saying it's that bad of news, per se. I mean... The Vita, one of my favorite consoles. The Vita, an awesome platform. Like, I loved the Vita as a portable. All it had were, you know, JRPGs, like Japanese games, and indie games. And that was a great console. So if the Nintendo Switch is just going to be that, but with a first-party lineup like Zelda and Mario, whatever, you got a great console. I just hope that people that are buying the Switch know what they're getting into, you know, which is a pretty damn cool console, a very original console that's going to be held back in certain ways. So if you're buying the Nintendo Switch and you're like, you know, um, I don't even know what would be like a big, what would be like a big game? I don't know. They're expecting Watch Dogs 2 to be brought over. It's weird, man. Like, there's no real big AAA games coming in the near future. Like, this fall still feels like a big cloud to me. Like, last year, I could still point to things, but this year, it's, uh, it's kind of slow, isn't it? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Anyway, moving over to legal news. Yes, we're going back into the courtroom. Uh, once again, ZeniMax is involved in a lawsuit, except this time, they're the defendants. I know, kind of a nice change of pace. Oh, and it has nothing to do with VR. Shocking, I know. No, ZeniMax is being sued by the musician. I want to make sure I get this. Dion DiMucci, I believe is the name. Dion DiMucci. Uh, for the use of his song, The Wanderer, in the Fallout 4 advertisement campaign. The television advertisement campaign. Uh, DiMucci's music is part of the Universal Music Group, which licensed the song to ZeniMax without DiMucci's knowledge. Well, now that's perfectly legal, of course, because, in fact, uh, that's part of the agreement DiMucci signed on to with the Universal Music Group. However, the lawsuit stems from the images in the commercial paired with his song. Here's exactly what the lawsuit says. Quote, uh, defendant's commercials were objectionable because they were featured repeated homicides in a dark dystopian landscape where violence is glorified as a sport. Uh, the killing and physical violence were not to protect innocent life, but were instead were repugnant and morally indefensible images designed to appeal to young consumers. End quote. So, Demucci's objection comes from a lack of communication. He's claiming that Zanimax did not seek his personal approval, despite the content of the commercials, and that he had, uh, had he known about the violent content, he would have, quote, uh, have priced into his fee adequate compensation to safeguard himself against the potential loss of goodwill from being associated with the immoral images in the defendant's scripts, end quote. And long story short, too violent. And if I would have known that, I would have asked for more money. Uh, Demucci is seeking monetary compensation in excess of $1 million. Now look, if you are a video game fan and you just focus on video games, you might look at this and be like, this is ridiculous. Everyone knows what Fallout is. How could he have not seen this coming? But you know, not everyone plays video games. Not everyone knows what Fallout is. And in fact, these music uh, lawsuits are actually not an unheard of. They, I wouldn't say they're common, but they're not an unheard of. Uh, I was doing a bit of research and it turns out that the band Slipknot, you know Slipknot, they're like the metal band that wears all the masks. They've been around for like 20 years. They actually sued Burger King back in the 2000s uh, for using a parody version of their band. Why is that a big deal? It wasn't even their band. It was a parody version of their band. Isn't parody protected by the First Amendment? Well, yes, it is. But Slipknot claimed that their likeness was being used to influence their fans to eat 
Burger King, and they had a sort of moral objection. Now, Burger King sued them back with a, I mean, they had a countersuit and it went on for a few months and then just both lawsuits were dropped. It was like, whatever, which means they probably had some sort of settlement, but we don't know. They just, or maybe they just agreed to just stop it altogether. Um, and another example, actually, the White Stripes, the, the uh, you know, the band with Jack White and the other white... <laughs> I don't know her name. They threatened to sue the United States Air Force. Yes, the United States Air Force. They threatened to sue them for using a re-recorded version of their song uh, in a commercial. Because, you know, they're like, hey, we're anti-war or whatever. We don't want our music used to encourage people to enlist uh, in any sort of military action. Uh, but they eventually gave that idea up. They never actually sued the United States Army, probably because of... I assume that the United States has pretty good lawyers. <laughs> so yeah, lawsuits like this do occur, and while big stars usually drop their efforts early on, smaller people tend to stick with it. Now, the only thing that I find kind of strange is that it took him, hmm, let's see about this, like two years to actually get around to this lawsuit, because you, you, would, you would have to kind of sue them in a way that would, um, in 2015, you'd have to sue them to be like, hey, I want these commercials taken down. Like, I don't want these commercials to reflect on my music. I don't want to be associated with this violence, which, you know, that is a worthy effort if he's going to try and control his brand. But on the other side of things, if he's going to sue them now, he needs to present evidence that this has in some way impacted his ability to make money, you know, that somehow he has been harmed uh, monetarily by this uh, ad campaign. And that's going to be really tricky to prove, but it's California courts, so who knows? Musicians usually win. <laughs> Just saying. Moving over, and one of the stupidest stories of the week, Sony's YouTube channel recently pulled their gameplay footage of the upcoming Bioware shooter Anthem after it was revealed to be the Xbox One X footage from E3. Yes, and this was on a PlayStation uh, YouTube. Now you might be saying, whoa, 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 how on earth did they get away with that? Well, <laughs> they actually used these translucent overlays to cover up the button prompts. So where there would be like a left bumper and a right bumper, it was then covered up by like L1 and R1, but the covers up, the cover-ups were translucent, right? And you could actually just still see the Xbox buttons behind them. It was stupid and embarrassing. So yes, Sony took down the footage. It's just one of those things that happens every now and again. In fact, Xbox has done it too. They, they've done it over the course of a few years, accidentally showed off PlayStation 4 footage. And because there is a difference in power, that's objectionable. So it was just a stupid, funny story. You know, it was just, I don't know. But sadly, that is not where the stupidity ends. I wish that's where it ended. Uh, Aaron Greenberg, he's the general manager of Xbox Games Marketing. He actually retweeted the article and, you know, just had like a crying, laughing emoji. Like he just had a little pot shot. He's like, look at this. Look what happened over here. That was our footage that they were using. Well, not their footage, but their console's footage. But my God, people lost their goddamn minds. Like I saw the people responding to his tweets and it was just a bunch of fucking psychopaths. Like there were these people that were just, they had like entire JPEGs of just like all the times Xbox screwed up, like on the ready. And I'm talking like year old storylines, like things about the, uh, the scandal between them and Machinima, which is from 2014, like early 2014. That's insane. <laughs> Look, I get it. If you have preferences, if you prefer the PlayStation 4 to the Xbox One and the Xbox One to the PlayStation 4, that is awesome because having preferences is one of the best parts about life when you can find something that you relate to or that you connect with and you can enjoy it. But if you're sitting there with like folders of old JPEGs from years ago to tweet at a Microsoft employee, get help. Just play some games. Enjoy yourself. Be happy for others. Don't be so fucking weird. <laughs> now let's move over to some Take-Two news because recently Take-Two 
began having a combative relationship with the modding community on PC regarding their takedown order of the popular Grand Theft Auto mod OpenIV, which I looked into it and I guess people call it OpenIV, even though it's Roman numerals for four. Uh, however, after thousands of negative reviews on the Grand Theft Auto 5 Steam page and a conversation with Rockstar, Take-Two eventually acquiesced, allowing the mod to return, though once again they stated that they would defend their IP against certain mods. And so it is that another mod has ended development this week, per Take-Two's request. Liberty City in Grand Theft Auto 5, a mod that imports Liberty City into Grand Theft Auto 5, has ceased production. What a creative name, but yes, it has ceased production. Uh, this is likely due to Take-Two's recent statement that it would not allow any sort of mods that, quote, import other IP, including Rockstar IP in the project, end quote. Uh, you know, uh, when Take-Two sent out this statement a couple of weeks ago, we covered it, and I remember specifically highlighting that part of the statement and saying, they're gonna go after the Liberty City mod. That is where they are going to next. Go back and, let's go back and play the tape, guys. You, you will see me right there being like, holy shit. Uh, on a side note, though, I wonder what's gonna happen to all those, like, Marvel mods, you know, the ones that you play as Iron Man and Hulk? Those are really cool. I hope they don't take those down, but they probably will. I don't know. Um, but yes, this is kind of silly at the end of the day, because, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who's who's buying Grand Theft Auto 4 anymore? You know, what are you really protecting, Rockstar, you know? I mean, actually, I take that back. I just bought a copy of Grand Theft Auto 4 on the Xbox. I'm serious, but that isn't, we'll talk about that some other time. It's an unrelated story. But I get the feeling that Rockstar was just trying to like, let people know they weren't, they weren't fucking around. Like, all right, all right, you'll get that open IV mod back, but we're gonna take this one instead. Like, they just had to do something. They had to prove it, right? I don't know. It's silly. <laughs> Moving on. Last year, developer Playdead released the awesome video game Inside. Personally, I think it was awesome. Uh, receiving near-universal acclaim from critics and fans alike. But shortly after its launch, Dino Patti, one of Playdead's co-founders, quietly left the company. In fact, we covered this last year, if you remember. Uh, apparently, he also netted a $7 million severance package. That's what people like to call a golden parachute. And while the reasons for his departure are still unclear, Patti actually gave us some insight in an interview with Eurogamer. Here's what he said, quote, there was some kind of fallout. You would know, Patty. What do you mean there was some kind of fallout? Anyway, there was some kind of fallout. It was kind of delicate. It also combined with other personal reasons. I really like Play Dead. It's something that's deep in my heart. I love the people there. They're still my friends. I'm on speaking terms with 98% of the people there. End quote. Uh, Patty is uh, still in the video game industry. He's currently working with Jumpship, a developer. Uh, as he's working as a producer, working on the upcoming title, Summerville. So I don't think we have an answer. And I don't know if we'll ever get an answer for exactly what happened. But if he's saying that, you know, 98% of the people are cool with him, who's the 2%? And whoever that 2% is, they have to be pretty important. Because it's not like Playdead is a huge studio. You know, it's not gonna be like, oh, this one animator didn't like me, so I left my studio that I co-founded. It's like, no, this 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 2% has to be one of the higher-ups. Maybe it's even the... um. Maybe it's even the other co-founder, but so far, you know, Patty's only said nice things about him, so who knows. I really want to know what happened here, though, because that was... Inside is one of the best games I've ever played. I just want to know who was involved there, what happened, what was the disagreement, what, what could possibly be the disagreement? They'd be like, alright, I'm walking away from success. Bye. <laughs> like, critical, uh, commercial, and artistic success. Those are the three things you want, and just abandoning them all over a disagreement with 2% of your company. 
It's insane. Anyway, moving over, we have another Ubisoft fending off the hostile takeover from Invendi story. Yes, every single week we do win these stories, but Ubisoft fending off the hostile takeover from Invendi. In this episode, <laughs> Ubisoft is attempting to explain expand. <laughs> Ubisoft is attempting to expand the board of directors by two members. Uh, Connie Fernandez, uh, Connie Fernandez Handelsman, and Virgin <laughs> Virginie Haas. These are the two people that he's attempting to break in. And if they were approved, they would become independent directors on the board. Uh, speaking of the proposal, Ubisoft CEO Yves Gilmont stated, quote, if their appointments are approved by our shareholders at the next general meeting, our board will have an independent majority and nearly half of the directors will be women. This development reflects our desire to be com to comply with the best corporate governances practices for the benefit of all of our shareholders, while also combining the necessary expertise and competence Compensies. I just sometimes I can't just say the right word. Anyway, for Ubisoft's long-term success, end quote. Um, in case you're wondering, why did he say that thing about women? I don't know. I assume that has something to do with the fact that oh, hey, look, 50% of the people here are women. 50% of the population is women. Ah, you know, whatever. Uh, in related news, a current independent board member, uh, Pascal Moynier, will leave later this September. How can I say her name easily? That's those are just random words. <laughs> when the uh, the annual shareholder meeting is held in September, that's when we'll find out if these people are going to get approved. So, uh, because one person is leaving and in, and Yves is trying to bring in two more as independents, uh, he's basically trying to expand the board by one member in reality. Because, like I said, they're losing one, he's bringing in two. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty good idea because the more board members, the more, uh, the more that that dilutes the potential infidence of... Uh, of a Vendi board member, even though Vendi has yet to have a uh, seat on the board, even though they, they're the largest investor in Ubisoft. So there's not really any news here. This is just sort of like the precursor to what's going to happen with the annual board meeting in September. And we'll check back then. But it's an interesting and well thought out strategy. Best of luck to him. And finally, <coughs> before we get to the charts, the producer of the recently debuted Castlevania animated series has announced plans to adapt the Assassin's Creed franchise into a cartoon as well. And if you say, hey, don't say cartoon, it's an animated series. I like cartoons, so I don't mind calling them cartoons. Uh, no details were released, but I do want to say that I will be watching the Castlevania animated series and I'll let you know what I thought in an upcoming episode sooner or later. All right. So let's go over to the charts. We have the best selling PlayStation 4 games from PlayStation Network for the month of June. You might be saying, why don't you cover the best selling Xbox games for the month of June? It's because Microsoft doesn't release those numbers. If they did, we would cover them. So here are the 10 best selling games on PlayStation Network on uh, in the month of June. Number 10 was Rocket League. Number nine was Minecraft. Number eight was Tekken 7. Number seven was Horizon Zero Dawn. Number six was Battlefield 1. Number five was God of War 3 Remastered. Number four was Grand Theft Auto 5. Number three was Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor Game of the Year Edition. Very, very specific. <laughs> number two was Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. And number one was Friday the 13th The Game. Now, Congratulations, Friday the 13th, the game, because that's a digital-only game, uh, doing very well on the PlayStation 4, being the best-selling digital game, and we know that digital uh, purchases are, are, are more relevant than they've ever been when it comes to uh, sales, right? But I do want to highlight, Crash Insane Trilogy is no slouch either. That game launched on the 30th of June. The 30th of June. And it's the second best-selling game on PlayStation Network for the month of June. I'm going to say that that's more than just a small cult following, right? <laughs> Well, 
I have some interesting and surprising information for everybody here. Uh, Nintendo actually released a list of the most downloaded Switch games in Japan so far. So, what exactly does that mean? Well, we have the 10 best downloaded games for Japanese accounts. This isn't even taking English accounts. And it's not even like a month or anything. These are just the best downloaded games, the most downloaded games uh, on the uh, Nintendo Switch so far. That's what we've got. And it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, number 10 was Othello, which is funny because that was one of the very first games <laughs> launched on the uh, Famicom by a third party. Uh, number 9 was The King of Fighters 98. Number 8 was 1-2-Switch. Number 7 was ARMS. Number 6 was Metal Slug 3. Number 5 was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Number 4 was Kamiko. Number 3 was Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Number 2 was Minecraft Nintendo Switch Edition. And number 1 was Snipper Clips. Of course, it would be Snipper Clips. That was a launch title, and it was digital. Uh, it's interesting, though, because, you know, Japan doesn't really embrace digital downloads quite as much as Americans do, because they're, you know... Uh, over in Japan, the idea of trading your games back in, selling your games, a lot more prevalent than it is here. Like, we just think of it as a GameStop thing, or maybe a Best Buy thing. But since the 1980s, everybody does it, because rentals were illegal over in Japan, and I think still remain illegal. It's a, it's a weird system over there. Uh, but yeah, so Snipper Clips number one, congratulations. That's awesome. Now let's get back to our regularly scheduled charts, finding out where the 10 best-selling games for last week in the UK. Number 10 is Rocket League. Number 9 is Dirt 4. Number 8 is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Number 7 is Elite Dangerous. Number 6 is Overwatch. Number 5 is FIFA 17. Number 4 is Forza Horizon 3. I always screw it up. I almost want to say Forza Horizon Zero Dawn. I don't know when that got into my head, but yes, number four is Forza Horizon 3. Number three is Grand Theft Auto 5. Number two is Micro Machines World Series. Wow. I mean, cool for Codemasters getting that back on the list. And number one is Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy on the PlayStation 4. Uh, like I was just saying, you know, Micro Machines, that has a... That's... that's that's actually a really popular franchise over in the UK. I mean, obviously it was popular over here, but Codemasters were, were big names back in the day over in the UK. And they released their games on, like, you know, computers and uh, the Mattel Nintendo Entertainment System and things like that over there. So, wow, number two, though. Now let's go over to Japan to find out where the 10 best-selling games over there for the past week. Starting off with the 3DS, it's Radiant Historia Perfect Chron... <laughs> Perfect Chronology... What is up with me today? I don't know why I can't read certain words. Number 9 was ARMS on the Nintendo Switch. Number 8 was Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the Nintendo Switch. Number 7 was Osomatsu-san, the game Hachimika Susoku Advice Dead or Work on the PlayStation Vita. Why can't I read that fine? You know what I mean? Like, I can't read other, like normal words fine? I can read that? <laughs> Number 6 was... Portal Knights on the PlayStation 4. Number 5 was The Alliance Live on the 3DS. Number 4 was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch. Number 3 was Monster Hunter Double Cross on the 3DS. Number 2 was Lego City Undercover on the Nintendo Switch, which I think just got a price drop, so that's probably why that is. And number 1 was Grand Theft Auto 5 in Japan. The number 1 best-selling game in Japan is Grand Theft Auto 5 because that actually also got a price cut. That's uh, considered the low price edition or whatever they call it. Man. What are you guys doing over there in Japan? Don't you know that we're, we're, we're protesting? That we're, uh, we're not buying Grand Theft Auto anymore? Darn, why won't anybody tell them about the mods? <laughs> now let's go over and find out where the best-selling consoles over in Japan for the past week. Starting off with the Nintendo Switch with 25,805. PlayStation 4 with 21,873. New 3DS LL with 12,668. Oh, 669, almost got that wrong. PlayStation 4 Pro with 6,000... 
PlayStation 4 Pro with 7,321, PlayStation Vita with 4,403, 2DS with 2,311, New 3DS with 740, Xbox One with 228, Wii U with 193, and in last place is the PlayStation 3 with 153, which means for the third week in a row, the Xbox One is not in last place in Japan. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling you, the tide is turning. They sold 228 consoles in a whole week. Just you watch, just you watch. Before you know it, the Xbox One is going to be the best-selling console in Japan. I guarantee that. Actually, I, I don't guarantee that, but that is wishful thinking. That's the secret. You ever read that book? You just got to imagine it and dream it and then make it a reality. That's going to have to do it for the chart park. The land where money grows on trees. All right, we've come to the final segment of the show. This is where we take a look back 10 years ago and beyond to talk about the history of video games and a little something. We like to call STRONG HISTORY! 11 years ago, on the PC and Xbox 360, Prey was released. Now, if the fans of Half-Life and Shenmue are to be believed, development hell is a recent phenomenon, where games are announced before vanishing for decades. But nope, way back in 1995, 3D Realms, yes, the Duke Nukem people, they're no stranger to this problem, began production on the technical showcase known as Prey. It was going to be showing off the brand new 3D engine. But within a year, the game already started to get a little sluggish in terms of development. They were aimless in many ways, and then they lost a director, and so they kind of started from scratch again. But in 1998, Prey was impressing critics and industry people behind closed doors at trade conventions because they were showing off the concept of tears, or I guess you could say portals, you know, much like the game Portal. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen in a first-person shooter. It was awesome, and people were really getting hyped for it. The only problem is 3D Realms had no direction for the project and yet again, it would lose another director. <laughs> so, how much worse could it get, right? Well, actually it got a little better. Next they would bring in, uh, Corrine? Corrine? Her name was Corrine? I wanna say it was Corrine? Corrine? I kept saying Connie before, I'm not gonna do that. Corrine Yu, she was a very young but talented programmer. In fact, she would go on to become uh, the graphical engineer for Halo 4. And if you've ever seen Halo 4, it is the best looking Halo game ever up until that point. Like, she introduced a lot of amazing concepts. Just a brilliant, brilliant worker. In fact, she was working on this game all by herself. She was working on Prey all by herself. One man team, one woman team, I guess I should say. But sadly, her work would never be seen because she left the company in 1999 because the project was not picking up on momentum. She was working on her by herself. So, two years later, in 2001, 3D Realms contracted Human Head Studios to reimagine Prey. Make something for us. Use id Tech 4 and bring us a finished game. And for years, the rumor that Prey was still in development was out there. But it was always met with skepticism. Like, come on, it's a joke. We get it. That game was yeah, announced back in 1995. It's like 2003. That thing is never happening. But finally, in 2005, Prey made its public debut with a projected release date of July 11th, 2006. And the best surprise of all, they actually met that release date. So yes, after 11 years, Prey finally hit store shelves. So was it worth the wait? Eh, not really. I mean, it's not bad by any means, but it's a pretty standard first-person shooter. 3D first-person shooter, I guess I should say. Like a faster version of Doom 3. Its only major difference would be the first cutscene. They have this cinematic introduction where this bar is being abducted by aliens. It's amazing. Everything else doesn't really, you know, hold up. I mean, they have portals, which is cool. They have portals before the game Portal was revealed. Also something really cool, but it's kind of hard to go back to. Uh, well, no, wait. There was one other thing that was really 
interesting at the time, they actually had a Native American protagonist, which is actually kind of rare these days. But they gave him magic spirit powers. Eh, progressive. Great. Uh, but the game did well enough to warrant a sequel, and so one was commissioned. But keeping with tradition, <laughs> it went through multiple different developers and would take 11 years to surface. And it came out two months ago. Yes, it's no longer called Prey 2, it's just called Prey. And it bears little resemblance to the original. <laughs> anyway, 16 years ago on the PlayStation 2, Gran Turismo 3 A-Spec was released. Now, there's not much to talk about here in terms of development. I mean, no more than any other Gran Turismo game. They just sit around and, and try and get everything as realistic as possible. It's, it's really impressive. But one thing I do want to talk about is just how fucking annoying the title is. I love Gran Turismo 3, but, you know, you go and play a Gran Turismo game. You got Gran Turismo 1, Gran Turismo 2, Gran Turismo 4, Gran Turismo 5, Gran Turismo 6, and now there's going to be Gran Turismo Sport, right? But for some reason, this one has, like, a subtitle, Gran Turismo 3 A-Spec? What the fuck is A-Spec? Like, it honestly sounds like it's a Game of the Year version. It just always bothered me. Anyway, this was one of the first, this was one of two games uh, from the Gran Turismo series that was launched on the PlayStation 2, and personally, it's probably my favorite. Why? Well, because I got to ram PT Cruisers off the road, and I hate PT Cruisers. So that makes it a good game. 17 years ago, on the Dreamcast, Virtua Tennis was launched. Now, tennis has been around forever in video games. Actually, tennis was the second video game ever invented. Really, ever invented. Table tennis for two, look it up. And third, well, there's just a lot of tennis games. So when Sega decided to jump into the whole tennis game concept, it felt like it was too little too late. But Virtua Tennis proved everybody wrong because it just simply felt good to play. Yes, it's really that simple. It just felt fun to play. You just, when you move the character around, it felt good. That's all it takes. And then when you'd swing, that felt good too. Virtual Tennis is awesome. But that really shouldn't be a surprise because it was developed by Sega AM3 R&D Division, which are the same teams behind uh, Virtual On, Crazy Taxi, and the Star Wars Trilogy Arcade. Virtual Tennis on the Dreamcast proves sports games can still be arcadey without having to be over the top. And that makes it one of the best games of all time. Yes, really. Go play Virtual Tennis with a buddy. You won't regret it. 24 years ago on the Super Nintendo, Super Street Fighter... Mm, nope. Street Fighter 2 Turbo was launched in Japan. It was Street Fighter 2, but faster. Also, 24 years ago on the Famicom, Super Famicom, uh, Super Mario All-Stars was launched in Japan. Now, contrary to popular opinion, the history of backwards compatibility has been spotty at best. People like to say, Whoa, why don't these consoles have backwards compatibility? But go back in time. Some systems had, some systems didn't. I mean, for instance, the Atari lineup always supported a backwards compatibility from the uh, 2600 to the 7800. You could still play those old games. While Nintendo went from the NES to uh, the, the Super Nintendo without backwards compatibility. Even though it was planned, it just was never brought over. Uh, and in fact, Nintendo would not support backwards compatibility until it launched the Wii and that had GameCube support. So, you know. We haven't always had this backwards compatible thing. So, anyway, uh, when when they finally launched Super Mario All-Stars, it was kind of a big deal. It really flipped the script on what people expected out of, you know, a re-release. I mean, it's, it's almost a precursor to an HD remaster. It includes all of the NES classics, like 1, 2, and 3, and some weird thing called the Lost Levels, which is way too hard. And over in Japan, they got the exact same experience. They got 1, 2, and 3, and some weird re-release of Doki Doki Panic called Super Mario USA. That's right, nobody kind of realized what the other person was playing. 
It's kind of funny. Uh, but for the time, it was fairly impressive. It highlighted the endearing quality of Nintendo's back catalog, catalog while, you know, bringing its uh, visuals into the modern era. And that's a concept that's so strong, it's still done today in these compilation packages, like the Master Chief Collection, or more recently, Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. So if you like that collection, you can thank Nintendo. The same. And lastly, in strong history, 34 years ago, 34 years ago over in Japan, the Famicom was launched, which is also known as the NES here in America. And, wow. You know, I'm not exaggerating when I say we could do several full episodes of the Pressure Cast just about the Famicom launching in Japan. Seriously, we could. There is so much that we could, we could talk about and dissect. It's impossible to do the Famicom launch justice in just a couple of minutes. So instead, I want to take a moment and just have everyone stop and think for a moment that there was a time when Nintendo did not make home consoles. Just really stop and think about it. I mean, of course, we could go into the whole thing about the uh, Funahara cards and, and the history of, of gambling and whatever and how Nintendo got so big. Love hotels, taxis, blah, 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 blah. We can do all that. But just take for a moment that there was a time when they were making video games and they did not make consoles. They didn't know what their console would be. They didn't have a concept for what a Nintendo console would look like. It's kind of something that you know, we take for granted. People take the NES for granted, people take Nintendo for granted, but when the Famicom was launched, it took a lot of really smart people to put that system together. I mean, it basically ushered in the modern age of video games, or at least home video games. Uh, and I think it's important to consider that at the time, in 1983, computers seemed to be the direction we were going. Like, consoles were, go were over in America, that was done, you know, but computers, computers were gaining momentum, and over in Japan, Likewise, computers were also starting to see a wider adoption rate because, uh, you know, they had more capabilities beyond just games. And so when they were developing the Famicom, uh, you know, Hiroshi Yamauchi, uh, the, the president of Nintendo for years and years and years until, his, uh, until he transferred it over to Iwata, he decided exactly what this console would include, or I guess what it wouldn't include. Uh, there were questions about like, oh, are we going to have like an expensive disc reader, you know, so that you can read and write? Are we going to have a keyboard in this console? And he instructed his engineers to just work on the cheapest console possible, one that like a child could afford just with their allowance. Like he took a survey apparently of how much uh, allowance cost over, or how much uh, allowance a child would normally receive in Japan, and then tried to base the console's projected price based off of that. Seriously, he's like, hey, everyone that's working on this console, make it as cheap as possible and make this a thing. But I also want to have good graphics. And we could get into the whole history of how they decided to pick a certain chip for the uh, Famicom. That's also fascinating. But what's really important is that he, he also instructed those engineers to create the capability for the console to grow over time. So he's like, okay, we're gonna make this as cheap as possible, but make sure that we have ports that we can connect to the console, that we can make that console grow over time. In fact, uh, you know, the, the original Famicom from 1983, it's possible to connect to the internet with that system. Yes, really. And for a time, people were checking their stock options through their Famicoms. I'm not making this up. This is true. It's insane. And so the Famicom launched in Japan and it immediately became a success. It became a sensation in Japan, but there was one problem. Many of the consoles had launched with a manufacturing defect that was causing certain games to lock up over time. Now fixing this would cost millions of dollars, but Yamauchi, as the president of Nintendo, he insisted that the customers be reimbursed with new consoles. There was a whole program. People could send in their consoles and get a brand new one. And what I'm trying to say in the long run is that 
Yamauchi wasn't a designer or a programmer, and apparently he wasn't actually that much fun to work with, and he didn't even really like video games, but he cared about his customer. He wanted children to be able to buy his console, and he wanted that console to be able to grow with them over time. And, you know, when a problem went down, he made sure that he shelled out millions of dollars to help that customer. Because, let's think about this for a second, he wanted that console to be endeared to them. He wanted to grow over time, right? And by making sure that he made that situation right, he created that relationship with his consumers. Now, the whole product before people thing gets tossed around all the time, where people are like, oh, we're not just about the product, we're about the people. And that's not always the case. But Yamuchi really lived up to that. He would screw over third-party developers just to help out his, uh, his customers. So yeah, the Famicom, when it launched, a lot of it has to do with Yamuchi and a lot of other people. We could just talk about Gunpei Yungoi's involvement for, for like an hour. It's an amazing story. If you've never read the book Game Over, highly recommend it. it talks all about this and it, it is fascinating. But that's going to do it for Strong History. Good show. Good show. This was a good show. I think everybody had a good time. But it is time to close up the pressure cast. Remember, you can go to youtube.com slash video games are dumb and check out my review of Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. You can also watch a video of me talking about arms and cave story and lots of other things. Uh, rhyme. There's lots of videos out there, guys. Just go watch them. Or you can watch some old episodes of the pressure cast. That's always fun. Uh, what are we going to be doing this week? Like I said, I'll be trying to do, uh, do something with Excel World vs. Sword Art Online. I don't know if it's going to be an impression video or a review, but we'll have something up uh, before the week is through. And then we'll do a uh, hunting simulator. Lots of stuff. Just just stay tuned. Stay tuned and have a good time. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, the Famicom used to be the hot, the new hotness. It used to be the best console out there. But then the Super Famicom came out and it killed it. It's because console cycles end. But the pressure cast will not because the pressure cast is forever. See you guys. Thank you.